welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Erica Isamura. So, Erica, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we are talking about Hastings Park. Hastings Park. For some people, it invokes really bad feelings if they actually went through it, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so, partly we're talking about it because... At the time of recording, this is like the 75th anniversary when it all started happening, right? So maybe we need to explain to listeners who aren't familiar with Hastings Park mm-hmm. what exactly it is. Right. Okay. The word Hastings comes to mind to, uh, to me initially. Well, you'd hear the Battle of Hastings in England. Right. But then it turns out that there's the Hastings Avenue in Vancouver, which which runs alongside of where this park is in East Vancouver. So, yeah, Hastings Park is actually, from what I was reading about, the second largest park in the city of Vancouver, I guess after Stanley Park, at 154 acres. But it's significant to the Japanese-Canadian community because it was one of the sites of incarceration in 1942 when the internment was starting and World War II was in the process of happening. Mm-hmm. So the the kind of weird thing about Hastings Park is that in the summertime, then it's used for the Pacific National Exhibition of the Peony, a fun place where even some of the Japanese Canadians would have gone under other circumstances. Mm-hmm. But then they have these big buildings there that were used for livestock and other exhibits uh, uh, that were then appropriated for this purpose of corralling the Japanese Canadians. Most people, I think, in Vancouver think about it in relation to the fair and the exhibits that happen, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty different relationship, thinking about all the fun that might happen there, Mm -hmm. than maybe what was going on in 1942. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the weird things I found out about it is that my, my father, he was a teenager when this happened, so years passed after that time that he was in Hastings Park, and uh, he ended up living in Toronto where I grew up. And then he came out with his business on a business trip, and they happened to have like a trade show in one of the buildings, and he realized it was the building that he had been in when he was a kid. Wow. So so that was kind of weird uh, for him and a little disorienting, I guess. So for people who maybe have moved away and haven't come back, then... It can also be disorienting because now there are some buildings still from that time and also some buildings that have been subsequently built up. Mm-hmm. So it's not the same place that it used to be, although some of them are still there. Yeah, they've gone through a lot of renovations and now they have installed in 2015, 2014, a lot of signage that actually explains some of the history of the buildings mm-hmm. in relationship to the internment. Right. So some of the buildings that are still standing which is where I actually learned about the history of Hastings Park because my grandmother went there Mm -hmm. before going to Tashmi. Mm -hmm. Um, Her family was first coming down from northern BC. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know about that history. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, every summer, I'd visit Playland, go to the Peony with my family, and spend time in these buildings, you know, seeing the... The, the pig, pig races. races. Yeah, yeah. The, and when you find out that that's the building where the women and children had to go. There's lots actually shared about the conditions that were pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, people arriving and them living in these stalls and them still being extremely dirty and smelly. Yes. And the internees themselves having to actually clean up the stalls to make them livable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they had divided up 
the families as well so the men were in one building and then the women and younger children were in this other building i can imagine there being some sexism involved as well because the women definitely got the worse off situation of actually being in the livestock building the men's building was the arena which obviously wasn't great the peony but forum. yeah, yeah. Uh, where they have the marketplace now but it was a newer building and obviously wasn't as bad as the livestock building where they had just had the horses and pigs uh, in there. Right. There's some pretty iconic photos of the Peony Forum with, you know, the hundreds of bunk mm -hmm. beds right. that are installed in the ex exhibition hall, mm -hmm. which is a huge contrast to when you look at the livestock building and the woman and children's space where they've kind of got these sheets partitioning their spaces. And right. if you think about having a young child or having to care for babies in that space, yeah. the thought is kind of horrifying. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And the the washroom facilities there being these troughs, they're just open troughs. Now over the course of the, the months that they were there, there were modifications that took place. Apparently they put dividers in the trough, so there is some division there but a bit more privacy maybe. yeah yeah a modicum of that but uh you know there were 12 year old boys in the same washrooms as these women so obviously a very uncomfortable situation mm -hmm. and initially it seems males that were 13 and older were all together but they were concerned about the bad influence of the men on these kids so teenage boys 13 to 18 were moved into a separate building so my, right. my dad when he came he was in the separate building then so it was all these teenage boys who were in one facility and there was a reverend who was kind of overseeing the women were quite busy caring for their children and there wasn't a lot for men to do so men were often getting into gambling or right. drinking right. or yeah. whatever else kind of in their building yeah and they wanted to keep the younger kids away from that although they didn't have much to do otherwise either they were also apparently prohibited from just going into visiting their families. They needed permission to actually right. go and, and visit. Right, permits to the, go between the different buildings. Right. Definitely some interesting stories from mm -hmm. people who were children there and the mischief they mm -hmm. got into. Now that sounds like you're leading into something uh, as an example of mischief. I was reading this, this story about one of the boys, or I guess a group of boys, who found a hole in the fence mm -hmm. leading out of the park that was kind of hidden from where the RCMP station was. Oh, yeah. So they were able to sneak out across the store and buy candy and come back through this hole. And eventually, one of them, I guess, they got caught coming back in. Mm -hmm. The RCMP officer as punishment assigned them to fix the hole oh. in the fence but they didn't actually have anything to fix the hole with so the hole kind of just remained and i think the rcmp officer said okay you can make a new hole like further at the other end of the camp <laughs> but they didn't want to make a hole there because they'd have to walk two blocks to get candy right. so they left the hole but i guess the sneaking out aspect of it was kind of gone by then and so it was no longer so much fun anymore. Hmm. But they did have passes that they could go out, so they could even go around different parts of Vancouver and so forth, but they had to have these passes that were taking place. Right. And supposedly, uh, well, those kinds of shops across the street suddenly had this huge potential um, uh, clientele, although even though the funds were limited, they there were some of them who were able to buy those sort of things. Mm -hmm. I heard one story who, of an ice cream man who was intentionally going back and forth in front. Oh. 
So that's pretty tempting. I also heard about some stories of mothers who would take their children, if they were able to get passes, off-site for meals. Mm-hmm. And specifically um, going to like, Chinese restaurants where they mm. could get the rice and mm. other foods kind of more similar to Japanese foods because the food at Hastings Park was so terrible. Mm-hmm. And the conditions of it weren't ideal. They were, again, in another huge building. It looks like there were like picnic tables lined up there. Mm-hmm. And then people would have to line up outside rain or shine, waiting to get their food slopped onto their tin plate. Right. And it would be a lot of starchy stuff, cafeteria things. Potatoes and stew and gruel. The government spent just over nine cents per person per meal is what it kind of cost it out to. Right, right. I remember looking at, there's a report on the whole thing. And it's interesting because the tone of it is almost they're proud of that. Right. Like, look at how f- efficient we were. Mm-hmm. And so that, that from their standpoint, it was a question of efficiency. And now, of course, you have to compare how much food costs normally then. But in any case, they weren't spending a lot. There was not a luxurious accommodation by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And I think it actually quite led to quite a few people being sick. You know, mm-hmm. with yes. Food well, poisoning, uh, yeah. diarrhea. A- a- and with all those people in one place as well, you can imagine when one person gets sick, it's going to spread quite easily. But in relation to that, there was some food boycott. So then they were just dumping the food into the garbage directly, which actually caused difficulties for the people who had to clean up because then obviously they increased the amount of garbage they suddenly had to mm-hmm. deal with. I'm not sure how effective it was, unfortunately. Mm, Yeah. So that was an ongoing issue. Although I think one thing that they commented on was the bread, because they would actually bake bread there. And there didn't seem to be a lot of control over it. There was a story of, you know, teenage boys when they first started drinking coffee there, because that was just sort of generally available. And so Mm -hmm. you can imagine these, these guys strung out on their coffee, (laughs) running around looking, looking for things to do. It's interesting to walk through Hastings Park and think about the space there, uh-huh. you know, and how many people came through that space. I think in March of 1942, initially there was about 2,000 people uh-huh. brought in. And in total, something like eight to 12,000 passed through mm-hmm. during those eight months. Mm-hmm. It's just totally like mind-blowing to look at these old photos. The processing and see. Of them, yeah. Also at Hastings Park today, there is the racetrack Mm-hmm. So lots of people going there for betting on horses. Back then, the racetrack was used to store confiscated cars and trucks right. from Japanese Canadians. Mm-hmm. So from the aerial view, you can see that it's sort of adjacent to where these, these other buildings were. Mm-hmm. And I think they also used to use that for uh, military practice, that, that sort of space. But this idea of what they were doing, they decided that they also had for the, the kids set up a, a kind of a school there. In the garden auditorium. Mm-hmm. And that building is still standing. But they didn't have, obviously, proper classrooms. But they were able to bring in uh, blackboards and desks and things from the Japanese schools that had been closed down because yeah. of this period. Except they didn't really have proper teachers. So they had some older students, university students, and, and Japanese-Canadian university students who were helping out volunteering with that. I think that they were working on correspondence courses, so they were being sort of supervised in that way. And I think some teachers were coming and going, like some teachers could get passes. Right. I heard of one teacher who was also teaching in Steveston, 
Yes. Well, Hidehiro Shimizu, who's quite mm-hmm. famous. Right, um, yeah. We did a whole other separate podcast on it. As you say, coming from Steveston all the way into town to yes. deal with that and, and overseeing the whole process. Yeah, and becoming in charge of the primary grades and really doing so much for yeah. students to get an education there. Well, part of it was to keep them occupied, giving them something to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then my understanding is they continued that until July of that year, and then it got too hot. They just couldn't function that way, so so they were carrying on for a while. And then after that, it was a matter of finding other things to do. There was a pool in the area, but then they were restricted from using that one as well. They were able to use it for a while, and then there was discussion within the city council as to whether that should be allowed. Was the pool accessed by the public at the same time? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So the accommodations we mentioned were divided up between the the men and the women. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how there were a whole bunch of bunks. Did you come across any other details on what the beds were actually like, what the sleeping accommodations were like? There was a lot of straw mattresses, yeah. which, you know, don't sound the most comfortable. Yeah, particularly if they've been used by horses and stuff. There were, there were uh, complaints of ticks being in them, and there are photos of people stuffing these sacks that were making the mattresses, right. so they were lumpy. They had to make their own beds, I think, yeah. as well. And they had the gray, scratchy blankets. I think mm-hmm. we had some in the collection. That seemed to have been all they got. There, there were no proper sheets, so I was reading about how they often would wear their clothes so that it would be less scratchy when they were sleeping. You mentioned before that your father was in Hastings Park as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Has he shared any of these things with you from his own perspective? Well, you know, the interesting and kind of weird thing is that younger people have a different experience and perspective of it. Like they often say it must be, have been terrible for our parents, mm-hmm. but they themselves, it's like free time, right? Right, And they're hanging out with other guys, just looking for stuff to do. So it was more like an adventure, you know, running around finding ways to, to kill time. Nowadays it would probably be worse because kids rely on videos or devices in order to be amused mm-hmm. whereas it seems to me that then they were better at amusing themselves so that might be kind of a, a bad way to put it but what i've noticed uh, particularly ones who are of school age you know the sense of responsibility is not usually there so so for them it's sort of this adventure when you go the next step up those who otherwise would be working or expecting to be working or had the uncertainty of what was going to be happening next. The adults, it, it was obviously stressful for them. Um, but I suppose one of the, the problems that we have as, as resources is this lack of information from Issei directly in, in ways that we can discuss. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is an ongoing issue with subjects about history. Especially with things like language barriers. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, though, as an older person being taken from your home to this confined fenced off space in the middle of Vancouver you know I guess the side of Vancouver would be really confusing and that's right especially because see I had wondered for a long time why my mother's family she grew up in Vancouver on Powell Street uh, how come they didn't have to go there whereas my dad did so my dad was in Victoria at the time when it happened and it seems so there was the ruling that everyone of Japanese descent who lived in a hundred mile band along the coast had to be removed. So 
it was the people outside of the major centers that that were being moved initially they were they were being brought over by boats like that so it was mostly these outside people so that it was even more disorienting if they weren't even from vancouver to be in this place and not know people necessarily around what was going on and being brought together with people from really far away communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I remember reading about that too because my grandma was at Hastings Park, but she was brought there from up north, mm. so up near the Skeena River. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know any of her stories personally, but I remember reading about how people had just different ideas about different people from different communities. Like, oh. You know, people saying, like, all the people from Victoria were so much more educated oh. and stuff like that than maybe the the fishermen folks on mm, the coast mm, or whatever. Mm. I don't know if that Victoria uh, applied to my father's case, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but there would have been these different uh, groups, enclaves. For my dad, this place, and also later on in the relocation camps, it was unusual because Victoria didn't really have such a concentrated population of, of Japanese Canadians. And so he, he was used to being mixed with people of different backgrounds and then to suddenly be in a situation where you're, there's nothing but Japanese Canadians all surrounding you was an unusual experience in right. itself on top of it. So we were talking about how today some of these buildings are still standing. In 2015, there is now these panels that have been installed at the park to share a bit of the history because Hastings Park has undergone a bit of a, a rent, some renovations. And now there are walking tours that are being offered, mm-hmm. which I think is really great. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the stops on the internment bus tour that the museum organizes every two years. Right, right, right. Have you participated in any of the walking tours? I I did go on one of the walking tours. And and it is interesting to get that orientation and to be able to look up and see the rafters, particularly the livestock building. When you think of living in there, it kind of is very powerful to actually be in the place. As well, the hospital was in the livestock building. And at the one end, it's interesting to actually compare the historical photographs. You can kind of match up windows sometimes and, and the mm. way the building is sloping to figure out where it was. Because even though they brought in dividers and things like that for the hospital, you can kind of tell which part of the building it was. Right. And that was a difficult situation in itself, the, the setup of the hospitals, mm-hmm. having enough beds for those who were getting ill. Initially, they had set up a certain number, I think about 80 or something like that. And then it turned out that the Vancouver Hospital for people with TB wanted to get rid of all their Japanese patients. So they they moved them to Hastings Park instead of in Vancouver proper. And so then they had to find more beds to, to be setting up for dealing with the other people. And it was a bit contentious about where they were gonna get this hospital equipment from mm. and hospitals not wanting to give up right their equipment i think what they ended up happening was they ended up getting a lot of discarded equipment uh-huh, uh-huh. from some of the local hospitals oh, things that they weren't using anymore yeah that maybe weren't right. up to <laughs> in yeah. the best condition yeah 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 and in addition to having a few outside um, medical professionals come in most of the people that staffed the hospital were japanese canadian nurses mm-hmm. that were paid a much lower wage than mm-hmm. what the salaried nurses were paid to be there. And, and you had come across some of the photos um, in the collection, which were taken by, 
a nurse who was working there, is that right? Yeah, they were donated by oh, a nurse who was not Japanese Canadian. She was a white nurse, Irene Smith, who worked at Hastings Park, and she donated a whole bunch of photos of the nursing staff, mostly staff photos or portrait-type photos, and not so much of the, the conditions. But a few, like you can see here, this is a photo of a number of metal beds close together at Hastings Park with a bit of a wooden partition. Not the best quality of photo. There are about seven cots with kind of these unfinished walls around them. So I think they ended up with about 180 beds in, total. in there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did hear this story of a woman who, when she was sick, had to be put in this underground separated area. She was a kid then, and there was these other kids who were sick so to kind of minimize the spread. Mm. Imagine being separated already and then being put with a bunch of other sick screaming kids. Right. It was a horrific uh, situation there. Yeah, I also heard of some of the older patients that were in the hospital having to do a lot of child care to tend to mm. the younger mm. people mm. in the hospital mm. space. So even while being sick, having mm -hmm. to take care mm -hmm. of people. But I think on maybe I don't know if it's really an upside, but I think they had separate food prepared for them as well, and so some of them hopefully avoided the mm. issues, the food poisoning that other people faced when they ate food at the the cafeteria. So the amount of time that people were there varied from say a few weeks to a few months. It was over that that stretch of time from roughly March, 1942, and then by the fall of that year, most of them had been moved other places. And it wasn't a permanent spot for people mm -hmm. to live and stay. It was kind of a processing grounds for people coming from remote locations to come into Vancouver before the BC Security Commission, who had an office at Hastings Park, processed them to send them either to road camps if they were able-bodied men or to other locations. I think I think a number of the people who maybe were sick were transferred to New Denver. Eventually, yeah. Once yeah. they built the sanatorium in New Denver, mm -hmm. then they were. But so they were actually the the last ones to leave. That was like March of 1943 that they finally opened that hospital. And then you were mentioning the road camps, and that seemed to be a big part of where the men were, basically waiting to get shipped off into doing this work on road camps, and then later with the. Camp, relocation camps in the interior. Right. So when we're talking about road camps, we're talking about places where men were often building highways and roads, basically, that mm -hmm. are still used today in mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. So this labor that was asked or demanded of Japanese Canadians while they were incarcerated to be building more ways for transportation and settlement across Canada. And so they, they were in these uh, the buildings waiting and then they would get these health checkups to see if they were ready to be shipped off. And so then they were being separated from their families and this obviously created a lot of uh, unrest and, and difficult times for them, the idea of being spread out that way. And in some ways it reminds me of a, a technique I remember reading about in Japan, how the shogun would separate the heads of families, make them separate from their families to kind of constrain them from any kind of revolt or making them powerless, really, is that use them in that way, too. Mm -hmm. So, Raymond, you mentioned earlier that this year, when we're recording right now, 2017, is the 75th anniversary 
of internment. How do you think Hastings Park fits into this bigger context and story about the Japanese Canadian internment experience? It seems when when you see interviews of people who went through it th- that it's the worst part in some ways, you know, as far as the extreme conditions, although it was a shorter period of time and then there were ongoing indignities that took place. But I guess it's the initial shock of being forced to leave your home and then be put in this place, treated like animals and have your family set up. It's, the psychological impact of that seems to have been um, ongoing. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder whether it, in, in a sense, might have broken the spirit of people so that they were more passive, more willing to go along with things subsequently, to knowing how extreme things could be. This was at the forefront of their experience. Mm-hmm. So maybe things just could only get better or worse Well, they thought there, even or... if they had a, a wooden tar paper shack in the right. middle of nowhere, they could say, oh, at least we've got our own shack. Right. So by comparison, it would probably wasn't even an intentional ploy because the Security Commission was still figuring out what they were going to do Right. in and this process. But They didn't back, really quite seem so prepared, clearly, yeah. to be managing all these people and... Right. Taking, feeding them and caring for them. Yeah. So I, I think the, the people who were able to survive, get through it, reasonably psychologically intact, show extraordinary toughness of spirit mm-hmm. as a result of that. Definitely. Lots of resiliency to have survived Hastings Park and to be able to come back to it. Yeah. You know, or live in the same city. Yeah, to have where... the distance. Yeah. The perspective. Mm-hmm. Well... If you were interested in Hastings Park, it's in Vancouver, open to the public. There's signage that describes the building. There is a nice park there, Momiji Park within there, which yes. is very nice and, and peaceful. Momiji Gardens as a tribute, kind of in honor and recognition of the Japanese Canadians who were there. Mm-hmm. Great. So when you say Hastings Park, it might bring to different thoughts to your mind, but certainly it's something we want to keep remembered. Yes, it's definitely a challenging thing to be talking about, but it still does sound Japanese-Canadian to me. Mm